Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. I decided that I'm going to create a three-part series on proteins because proteins are so misunderstood and we think we got it all down. Heck, food is only food. Why do we need to know so, so much about the nuances of carbohydrates or fats or proteins? You know, why the refined versus complex carbohydrates? Maybe people have that now, processed versus unprocessed. Fiber versus no fiber. What about fats, the essential fatty acids, and so on? Anyway, we're going to talk about proteins. And protein is actually very, very, very important. I think perhaps, and I think many people agree, I think pretty much everybody agrees that this is the most important macro of all three macros. So when we talk about a ketogenic diet and a low-carb, high-fat diet, you would think that would be a emphasis on fat. Our brains are fat. Our nerves are fat. Most of our organs are fat. And when animals eat other animals, they tend to eat the fatty organs first, and they leave a lot of the muscle behind. Of course, it depends how hungry they are. Nobody leaves anything behind if they're really hungry, right? But there's a reason for that. And so I think I would like to go deeper into understanding protein. I think that it will be kind of a relief. It's black and white. And also, it's very, very, very fascinating. And I hope I can share some of that with you. So in part, this topic is like all the other topics. It's about my fascination and my need to understand why is it that seven years ago you dropped the carbs and began this thing called a ketogenic diet before it became a, a keyword in the local marketplace and the meaningless word for the most part, but it is shorthand for a ketogenic diet. You know, why is it that transformed my health and my wife's? And we are not looking for weight loss. Okay, so it ties into that. We're now in protein. We're going to go deeper on that. So let me break it down to you. We're going to have three podcasts. One's going to be this one, which is the uh, kind of protein you eat truly matters. So we're going to go into a, I hope, a really interesting understanding of protein in general. So you're going to get a grasp of all this. Then is carnivore right for you? and what you need to know about it. And last, we'll be talking about a protein-sparing modified fast, what that is. And we'll get into some labs at that point, because my wife and myself just had our labs done, and we did, call it intermittent, we did four days, four or five days of a protein-sparing modified fast. So we'll get into all those definitions then, and why we did it. We did it for pretty much different reasons. What happened? 
what made us start thinking of that. It was certainly something we brought up in our coaching program uh, a month or so ago. And and then, of course, the previous coaching program, back, back, back. And each time it gets a little more refined, no pun intended, a little more refined in terms of the idea being presented and the documentation, the monitoring of it, and the instructions of it. And it's interesting what people walk away from with it. Not everybody leaves with the same understanding of why the heck am I doing this? What, what's supposed to happen? Um, but I believe everybody sees the benefit there. So one, two, three, those are the three we're going to get to. And we're going to start off today about going over protein. So let me get lined up. Okay, let's get started. I think it really is important for you to understand some basics of what is protein. But So we're going to have to go, what is protein made from? And so I'm going to go back to a little bit of a high school lesson. Isn't that where all of this really comes from? I mean, our macros were covered in high school, probably junior high school now. All right, so the proteins are made from amino acids. So the question is, how many amino acids are there in the world in life? Uh, 21 is the answer for a quiz show. Somebody could say arguably 22, but we're going to go with 21. That's what I have listed in front of me, and that's what we're going to talk about. And uh, they go from very simple to pretty complicated. So an amino acid really are the building blocks, the brick. Think of a brick wall. Each brick is going to be an amino acid. So every protein, every protein that you know of, So if you were to put your hand on a wooden table, that's composed of protein. That was once part of a tree. We're going to go with that, right? Your table you have your hand on is a, it was once made from a tree. So that was protein. So those are all going to be made of 21 amino acids put together in different combinations. You start adding amino acids together. That's called peptides, which simply means more than one. And so you can have long strings of amino acids, so it's called a peptide. Sometimes they call it a polypeptide, which is kind of a redundant term. But that's basically all we're talking about. So what's fascinating is, absolutely, I just think, you know, it's it's nice in life to finally be able to review some basic information that we were told again and again and again. We had high school, then college, if you were pre-med, then medical school again. But basically, there are only, not even basically, there are only 21 essential amino acids. So that means it's not even half a deck of cards worth. So imagine that you and I are going to go to a buffet, okay? And this buffet is a protein buffet. And it's not the protein buffet that you think you're going to. We're going up to the counter and there's 21 little dishes there and they all have a particular powder in them. And each one will have the name of the amino acid in front of that little bowl. So there's 21 bowls. This is our buffet. And um, you were thinking steak or fish or something, or maybe even oysters. Later, that's another buffet. If you pass this, we'll go to another buffet at the end of the third podcast. Okay. But really, look at this. All of life is made from these 21 bowls. From that, the combinations of all of these adding one to the other. And of course, it's a chemical reaction and little specialization goes into that, making it happen. But there, it's incredible. I mean, all of life as you know it in the world is made of these 21 amino acids. So an amino acid really is uh, comes down to two components. One is called a carboxyl group. And this, um, this is getting a little bit technical, just let it go, receive it and let it go. But also I know you have had this before in your life. So it's the double bonded oxygen with an OH group, otherwise known as a hydroxyl group, plus 
at some other part in this molecule, there's going to be a nitrogen and a hydrogen tied together, and that's going to be the, the amino group, they're going to call it. Hence, it's an amino acid. The acid is the OH hydroxyl. So the hydroxyl group makes anything an acid. So that hydroxyl group is also in the end of fats. That's what we call them fatty acids. So every fat is a fatty acid because it has that group. This is an amino. Remember, it has the nitrogen and the hydrogen together. Stick in the carboxyl group. Now it's a, I guess you could call it a nitrogen acid, but they call it an amino acid. Hence, it's the beginning of the building blocks. So they get a little bit complicated, but it's it's amazing how simple these are. And now, you know, we are a very long time since we just ate meat, right? We just ate meat. That that was the only thing we could eat. Right now, if you wanted to, you could go on your computer and you could click and you could order any one of these amino acids. I haven't double checked for any one of the amino acids. And sometimes certain amino acids are given therapeutically, even naturopathically. So you don't have to be in a hospital. Obviously, if and I'm not speaking of somebody having some great genetic deficiency and they just needed this one thing. No, I'm, I'm speaking of, for the most part, normal people that do not have extreme conditions still do and at times warrant taking one or two or various single amino acids. So not the protein that you find in fish or fish or pork or lamb or beef, but the actual simple amino acid. And here's where things start to get complicated in our life, in your life. And that has to do with processed foods. So since the age of actually only having a choice of eating meat or fish, and when I say meat, I mean the pork and the lamb and the anything on anything on four feet and fish. And that's a lot of choices, right? And also means poultry. So that's what I'm calling meat. Animal is really what this is all about. So it was a long time ago that that was the only thing we could eat. So you might think of the first image that uh, flashed in my mind was, okay, when the Europeans came to this country and they went out west. Well, when they're out west and really trying to settle the west, quote unquote, take it away from the Native Americans, that they ate basically things that were on the hoof. They fished as they went and they ate what they could kill. And so there you go. That was a pretty basic diet. They certainly didn't have much in the way of veggies, if any at all. So that was their life. That was a life of the greater 1800s moving out west. Since then, I'm trying to think of the culinary chronology coming forward. But what I meant about processed foods is once you started to isolate and identify these different amino acids, you could then incorporate them into different aspects of foods. So we started to make collagen. Where did we get collagen? Well, collagen actually was kind of the leftover portion of the hoofs and the cartilage and so on that was just sort of all boiled down. So that's where you got your cartilage. Uh, that's where you got your collagen, excuse me. Collagen is part of cartilage. So you had that. That's also your bone broth. And so that's now become pretty trendy in these last couple of years. We hear the words bone broth. You know, it's the natural form of collagen. That's true. And it's all good to have and go have it. And I think you should make it and we do ourselves. So that was the first sort of separating out a little bit, but still it's a whole food source of amino acids primarily and in minerals and 
and so on and so forth. But it's mostly uh, the gelatin that's involved and pretty interesting, huh? And you can have that and you will heal your gut and so on and so forth. But we've now sort of isolated not all proteins. We don't even, collagen doesn't have all your essential amino acids. So as your essential amino acids, by the way, are arguably nine, eight or nine, depending if you, how you look at glutamine. But you need to eat these amino acids because your body cannot take them from another part of your body. Your body cannot manufacture these. When I say manufacture, when you, uh, manufacturing is breaking down muscle tissue to extract certain things. So it's really remodeling and reusing, repurposing would be the way we talk about it today, uh, certain amino acids. So what's this about processed food? Carl keeps kind of like implicating. All right. Well, processed foods now is like, you now processed food and an industrial food company has all 21 of these dishes of single amino acids, and they can make a lot of different products out of these. Some of them are not whole foods at all, and some of them have not ever existed in the world before. They just have to be proven to be safe. And so one of these is, maybe I'm jumping ahead, is one of the 21 amino acids is called aspartic acid. We'll get to that. But um, it is sweet tasty, and they made that into the, with slight modification, they made aspartic acid into a sweetener called aspartame. And aspartame has a lot of problems. It has a lot of problems with it. You know, it's not just allergenic side effects, but really immune dysregulation. So you go, wow, that was just one amino acid that they slightly modified and they made a gazillion dollars on. This is now in the eight, uh, 1980s. I think it's 1984 got approved under Bush one. And it became a terrible product, still available. And you can still absolutely screw up your immune system by having that, as well as suffer a lot of uh, uncomfortable conditions along the way. So that's an example of take, they found it, they took it, they altered it, and they sold it back to the public on something that never existed before. And so that's a very uh, great example of a very easy thing to do and so there's a lot of other things that are done. So now somebody did figure out, let's get the basic amino acids and start putting these together and make food that's never existed before and sell it back to people. There's a lot of problems with that. And not only that, they don't have to put uh, these things on the labels anymore if they're not above a certain percentage. Not to go down that road. I think we've talked about that. Labeling. I'm big in labeling. I think people should know what they're eating, everything that's in there, not just if it's a lot of something. Okay, so there's that. So anyway, of these 21 amino acids, let's let's start talking about some of them. Well, you know, one of the ways that um, when we are looking at keto or low-carb, high-fat, we talk about our macros, right? So in a keto, classic ketogenic diet is 20 grams of carbohydrates, and then you calculate on a per-person basis how much protein they need, and... Those calculations roughly are, I'm just going to say, one and a half grams of protein per kilogram, which is 2.2 pounds, of one's ideal body weight. So I'm 5'10 and a half. Right now I weigh 160. I'm kind of the average American. The average American male is 5'10, 155, uh, yeah, 155 pounds. So that's where I would start. I would divide my 155 pounds by 2.2 and get my number of kilograms. 
and then I would times that 1.5. So that's pretty much how we calculate how much protein we have. Let me get more or less, but that at least you're having what you need. And so we're going to go into a number of categories. So we tend to think that um, now sticking to the theme of the ketogenic diet, that as we've talked about in past podcasts, it's funny how they put carbohydrates and proteins together together as being able to increase your blood glucose. So if we're strictly referencing that relative to your glucose, we would call that glycemic. Glycemic is the word for making glucose. So you eat carbs, you break it down to glucose, it makes, makes sense, right? But you eat protein, you don't break it down to glucose per se. So how does that, how, how do proteins affect your blood sugar? I mean, how, how is that possible? And um, right now we're going to pretend all proteins are the same in this particular pattern. So how that works is that you take in protein and your proteins are broken down, digested by, and then sent off to the liver um, to either make glucose, they call that gluco as in short for gluco, neogenesis, making new glucose, pretty straightforward. So it's digested, your proteins are digested, broken down to maybe not all the way down to the amino acid level, but they're broken down to pretty simplistic peptides. That's one or two or maybe peptide strings. That sent off to the um, liver, and the liver will make glucose out of it if it needs glucose, right? So it's regulated. It doesn't just automatically do it. But in terms of calculating what you need back when they did the first uh, initial ketogenic diet back in 1921, they were very clear about this much carbohydrate and this much protein. If you had more, your blood glucose is going to go up. Now, that was all about pediatric epilepsy. And that's why they had a real threshold. We are just not going to have more of this. But the fact is, there are actually two different ways of getting to glucose. One is, in essence, you're eating glucose. So you can call carbohydrates exogenous glucose, right? And then, but protein is not exogenous glucose. So now let me go a little further here. So now we have this list of 21 amino acids. And nine of them are essential amino acids. I mean, we have to have those nine amino acids daily because we cannot make those nine amino acids. And if we don't, if our diet is devoid or deficient in one of these amino acids, we will start suffering, you know, whatever the side effects are of the deficiency of that particular amino acid. And again, it's usually immune and then it's about um, bones and it's about cartilage and then it could be about anything. Uh, amino acids are also neurotransmitters. Some amino acids are also neurotransmitters. Uh, and they, all enzymes, when things get converted from one thing to another, so an enzymatic reaction, all enzymes are amino acids. So they play, you know, they are in essence the infrastructure. They are the software and they are the hardware, um, but they are not necessarily the wires. The wires would be the neurons and that would be fat. But you can see it's a big deal. Okay. Okay, so for the list, so we say, what are, what are the um, essential amino acids? So the essential, the nine essential amino acids. Um, and if you thought that I had them memorized, I do not. And they are histidine, isoleucine, leucine, lysine, methionine, threonine, tryptophan, 
phenylalanine and valine. And valine. So I'm going to give you some general references here and hope to make it interesting. So you have tryptophan, tryptophan, which you can buy as an amino acid. It's pretty common. If you go on to probably any pharmacy, you'll see tryptophan. And why do people take tryptophan? Well, tryptophan is a precursor for uh, serotonin. It's a precursor for melatonin. And so that's why people take it. They, they think they're going to be calmer for it. And sometimes they will. It depends how much. And also it depends if they're deficient. So if one doesn't need more serotonin, which most people don't need, if, one pe if people don't need more melatonin, um, taking more tryptophan is not necessarily a good thing. So the problem about taking an individual amino acid is you can really get into trouble. Taking too much of one thing is going to drive a deficiency of something else. Um, and having an excess of tryptophan is not like having money in the bank. You know, you can have, if you only need $1,000, but you have a million dollars in the bank, well, good for you. You know, that's backup. That's your buffer against all the hardships of life, financial hardships of life. And uh, it doesn't work that way with, with amino acids. It doesn't work with, that way with a lot of things in your body. So you need an appropriate amount. You don't need, need more. You can't bank it. Okay? So that's an important concept. So when we talk about isoleucine, leucine, and valine, those are what they call the three branch chain amino acids. And three branch chain amino acids are, I've always been, it's the fuel for the liver. The liver actually doesn't, uh, it doesn't function from glucose like our muscles do. It functions on branch chain amino acids. And it uses those for a lot of other purposes. Methionine Methionine is what you get from animal, you know, for for all animal products that have already dis, uh, disclosed and listed. But if you had soy, really interesting. If you were saying, I'm a vegetarian, and this is where vegetarians can get themselves into trouble. I'm a vegetarian, and I'm just going to eat tofu. I'm going to eat soy products. Well, guess what? Tofu is devoid in methionine. And if you have, if you don't have methionine, you have methionine deficiency. And they actually did studies on what would that be like if people were methionine deficient? Well, they didn't do it on people. They did it on monkeys. And um, they found a lot of cardiovascular issues. Um, certainly early death, increase in mortality, like any deficiency would increase mortality. So that's not particularly insightful. But it was um, directly and mostly about cardiovascular issues, both cerebral and um, heart-associated. Okay, so that's pretty interesting, I hope. And um, I'll leave it at that. I'll come back with bits and pieces about that. So those are the nine essential. You have to have them every day. And so therefore, when people try to get so clever, and um, back in the early day of coaching people, they said, you know, what are processed foods that I could have? Well, the fallacy of processed foods are somehow in there, you're going to get enough of all the things you need. No, that's not how it works. A processed food doesn't really give a hoot unless it's you know, unless it's focused on, hey, we're going to give you the nine essential amino acids. So don't worry about it. So processed foods generally are very incomplete. You know, unless you're taking a supplement, then that's what pretty much, a, that's what it would be called if you're taking something that's completely and only the nine essential amino acids. Um, processed foods are devoid of that. They're incomplete. When you're taking a whole food, if you're eating meat, something that exists in the world and something that we've exist, we've eaten for millennia, uh, what do I mean by millennia? Okay, so I was listening to a talk about the Pleistocene era. 
the Pleistocene era, at least for this talk, was about South Africa and the various humanoids they found there. Um, that ranged from 150,000 years ago to 400,000 years ago. That's the Pleistocene era. And what was really, really interesting there is that they had different humanoids. So they, the theory was we don't all come from uh, Homo erectus or Homo athopisicus or whatever. I, I won't even pretend that I know all that. But they found, um, and I don't know which one this was called, they found humans, humanoids, that were well over seven feet tall as an average. And for those who have gone through certainly our coaching programs, when we cover the history of, of the introduction of um, refined foods, so we go through the introduction of grains about 10,000 years ago and the introduction of dairy about 9,000 years ago, both happened in the Fertile Crescent in uh, Egypt or really where Iran and Iraq are between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Also a lot of biblical references. And you think of uh, Abraham, he was, oh, about 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years before the time of Christ. Anyway, so in that era, before that time, we were all hunter-gatherers. We pretty much all had the same diet. And they, you know, there's not like lots of data here, but there's enough data to make it very interesting, especially now that we can study D DNA from uh, bone fragments and so on and so forth. And what we found is that actually the average human height uh, dropped by a foot, basically, over a period of, I don't know, 100,000 years or so. Hard to imagine that kind of length of time. They think that uh, Homo sapiens, kind of the humans that we are now, really came about around 200,000 years ago, 200, 220. So for that dateline, so we've been living as we are now for, for the most part, a little over 200,000 years ago. And before that, there was very, they think now there's various humanoids out there and some were huge, but as an average, they're all much bigger. So just in introducing dairy and grains, it, not, it dropped down our, our average height by about a foot. It, they could see that there before and after this period that there was arthritis, there was heart disease. So there you go. So my flag up, we'll get more into dairy later in one of the subsequent podcasts to revisit it as we've talked about before, but this time a little more technically and hopefully you'll find it interesting as I do. Okay, so that's the background. So proteins are a big deal and you really need to have all nine essential. It's been around, let's say for the last 400,000 years. So it's really hard to, hard to argue with that cuisine, <laughs> with that requirement, okay? So let's go on from there. One of the things are, now let's go back to that buffet that I painted you. We have these 25 bowls up there and each one is a an amino acid is in front of you. So let me give you let me give you a list of let me name this list this buffet for you. So we're going to say we have arginine, histidine, lysine, aspartic acid, glutamic acid. I'll tell you why those are named that way later. We have serine, threonine. And don't get that confused with Theanine, it's threonine, as, a, as like the letter three, threonine, asparagine, glutamine, cysteine, selenocysteine, glycine, proline. We have alanine, isoleucine, leucine, methionine, phenylalanine, tryptophan, tyrosine, valine. Okay, that's the vocabulary list. And you probably hated that class in high school because you had to memorize it and there's too many to memorize, right? 
But I want to give you a little orientation of how hyper simple some of these are and how fairly complicated just in the amino acid side. So everything, amino acids start with glycine. Glycine is that acid group, right? That double bonded oxygen and that OH tied to a carbon, of course. And to that, this is glycine, to that one other carbon with the NH group. That's it. So it's two carbons, an NH group, and the acid group, carboxyl, amino group, two carbons, done. That's as basic as you could get. And from that, it increases from glycine as off to serine. So you'd think, gosh, maybe that's like a primitive amino acid, and maybe they get more complicated. Well, that's part of a way of looking at it. But glycine is pretty amazing. For one, is you can't easily get that as a single amino acid. You'd buy a tub of it and have it shipped to your house. Why would you do that? Well, glycine is a neurotransmitter. Isn't that amazing? So here you go. Here you go. You can have this uh, tub of neurotransmitters sent to your house. It's a calming neurotransmitter. And they chelate a lot of um, minerals with it. So you can have magnesium glycinate, which simply means it's magnesium chelated to glycine. Magnesium is calming. Glycine, glycine is calming. So it's rather a very calm form of taking magnesium. But glycine by itself, uh, I've prescribed it for people. It's just, it's the easiest way to, and you put it on their food. They can even drink it if they want to, but you try to mix it into their food. They would calm down. It would it would make them, they'd sleep better. And so there's a lot of reasons. And so why would that be? Well, it's so ubiquitous. It's so used in so many things that it's hard to say it's just one reason. It's probably because they were on a diet that they were deficient in it and they needed it to be you know, the big sort of obvious reason, but it's a, a very common, easy thing to do. Is there a danger? It's also a precursor for your, um, a precursor for your uh, bile. You have two bile salts. You have glycine and taurine that are the precursors. And um, it's just used in everything. It's amazing. So um, it's a neurotransmitter in the brain, in the nerves, and so on and so forth. So that's just the first simplest amino acid that has all this power to it. It's used in so many different things. Also, glycine is combined with other things. You know, it's they add, as I said before, a peptide, a polypeptide, a longer and longer and longer. You have glutathione, which is basically made of glycine. Glutathione is made in the body of amino acids, and it's the biggest antioxidant in the whole body. You need that. It's kind of like the antioxidant in which they measure all antioxidants against. It's a... And uh, it's a very big deal. And we can measure when you're low on it. When you're low on it, you tend to be very pro-inflammatory. And we can measure how inflamed you are by labs like CRP. High sensitivity C-reactive protein. So anyway, all that is just around a story of one amino acid. But I wanted to get you back to that buffet. And so now I'm going to say, let's you and I go through each dish and we're going to take a little bit of that and we can put in some water and down it, a little bit of that, down it. But what we're going to do is that we're going to do this test, which is going to show us if you are, it's, it's what um, has been used for the last 100, maybe 150 years to show us if you are a fat burner or if you're a carb burner, if you're burning glucose. So what would we do? How do we do that? Well, even back at the time of Otto Warburg, if you can remember him, remember what I interviewed uh, Tom Siegfried? And uh, he was talking a lot about 
Otto Warburg, who uh, died in, I think it was the 70s. He was got, an, got a Nobel Prize for doing a number of things, but he was most fascinated with studying cancer and said that you know, cancer burns sugar and it got into the respiration. So. But the reason he found, he, Otto Warburg, found this to be interesting is the method is called respiratory quotient, RQ, respiratory quotient. So if I simply measured completely the air that you exhale, and I measure only two things. I measure the amount of carbon dioxide, because you know you, as your body consumes oxygen, it breaks it down and it makes carbon dioxide. So if I measure the amount of carbon dioxide versus the amount of oxygen, that I will know, are you a primarily a fat burner? Or are you a sugar burner? Are you a glucose burner? So how I would do that is that if I had a one-to-one -one ratio Right? So I had an equal amount of carbon dioxide, an e equal amount of oxygen in your exhaled breath. I would That would be a one, right? One to one. Duh. So if I get less carbon dioxide and they use so that we have one as one, one benchmark. So one means that you are burning fat. And as you start to burn less carbon dioxide, you're burning more fat. So you're making less carbon dioxide. And so the number they use for being a fat burner is 0.7. So 0.7 a line, that means you're a fat burner. If that's the ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen I get in your breath. And one is you are a glucose burner. Okay then. So with those two numbers, I can go, let's go to the first dish. We'll start with alanine. Starts with A. I think that's an appropriate place to start. <laughs> okay. Start with alanine. It's also a very simple amino acid. And we have some of that. And I go, okay, take a teaspoon, mix it with water, drink it a little bit. Let me see what happens. I measure it and I go, oh, you're 0.83. What does 0.83 mean? It means you're someplace between a fat burner and a sugar burner, glucose burner. So I just mark that down, 0.83. And by the way, these are tables that are out there already. So we go through, the next one is arginine. Well, you'd be producing less carbon dioxide. 0.73. So you're almost right at fat. So um, the next one, asparagine, would be exactly one. So that I would say, if I didn't know what you're eating, I go, well, you're a glucose burner. Are you, are you having carbs? You go, no, I'm not having carbs. I just had this little dish here of asparagine, protein. All right. I go, well, let's go to the next one. We're doing this alphabetically. So now we go to aspartic acid. Remember, that was the one that was made into um, aspartame. Okay, so now we go to aspartic acid, and you're now 1.17. You are burning more carbon dioxide than one who is burning glucose. And you go, what the heck? Well, that is actually the sweetest, if you will. It actually has, if you were to ever taste it, aspartic acid or aspartic um, that's what they call aspartic acid, so that's the, the amino acid. It does taste sweet. So it's a pretty small step to simply, I don't know if they hydroxylated or whatever, but they did a minor change to aspartic acid to make it aspartame, so even sweeter. So that's what you're having. You're actually having an amino acid. So just like when I said, be careful of the amino acids you have, if you don't need it and you start having more of it, you're going to drive yourself into creating a number of problems, and that's what happens. So in essence, that's what that is. Aspartame is an amino acid in a 
artificial way. Then you go on to cysteine and so on and so forth. So it ends up, the point that I'm getting at, is proteins are not all the same. If some are very sweet, they're even, you are going to show that on your mitochondria and on your, they are more glycemic, if you can imagine, than glucose would be. They are more carbon dioxide producing than if you were strictly a carb eater. And you go, say what? Absolutely. So, and then you have others that are more difficult for the body to process. And so you actually produce, you're even more, you're lower than a fat burner in terms of carbon dioxide. So you're down to the, the most difficult amino acid to process or the lowest on the RQ, respiratory quotient, which is the carbon dioxide to oxygen is I believe it's methionine and methionine comes in. Yes, I'm correct. Of course I'm correct. I got all the answers here. It's 0.6. So it's phenomenal. So what I'm trying to get at is that protein isn't just this one little slab in front of you. When you start breaking it down to these 20 amino acids, they all have their different, uh, different individual properties. And so consequently, when we get to that thing called oxidative priority, and we talked about that a few times, is that even within the protein, unless you're breaking down just steak, just fish, a whole food source of proteins, they all have their subcategory as well. So the takeaway there is there are actually four amino acids that are more, and the, and the word is actually glucogenic. So the reason we don't call them glycemic making glucose because what it is, is they, as I mentioned, that a protein has to go to the liver and the liver, um, and it processes them through a number of steps to make glucose. So it goes from, it hits glucagon, it activates a glucagon, glucagon then triggers the liver to make gluconeogenesis. So they call it glucogenesis. They don't call it glycemic. Small difference, but it's just a different way to the same outcome. Isn't that amazing? Okay, and then they have some, two in particular, that are actually much more difficult to process or more slowly or more produce even less carbon dioxide than fats. And they would be methionine and cysteine. And cysteine is part of a lot of different things. But when I think of cysteine, I think of it as a precursor for glutathione. So we give N-acetylcysteine. N -acetylcysteine. Um which is a slightly different form for precursor of glutathione for a lot of different patients. And also you can get N-acetylcysteine as um, mucomis, which is a product in most grocery stores, grocery stores, um, drugs, uh, pharmacy stores. And uh, it also ends up, it's what they call a mucolytic. So not only is it a precursor of glutathione, it breaks up your mucus, and that's why people generally have it when they are very mucousy. And that's why... Now, during the time of COVID, uh, NAC is one of the things that many people take as a preventative to get their glutathione up at the same time to keep their mucus down. Okay, hope you found that fascinating. We'll revisit that, but just now you know, I just sort of took your piece of steak. I broke it down into these 21 little, 21 uh, amino acids, dishes. And on this buffet, we went down this whole little list and we wrote down our numbers on that RQ, carbon dioxide versus oxygen, and we found, wow, some of these are 
have this have a more sugary response, if you will, have a more glucose response in the end than glucose does, and some have a more fatty response than fat does. And that would be in the terms of how glucogenic than sugar or fat. Okay then. So that was a point to get across. So all proteins are not equal. Let's go on to something maybe you can relate to a little, little more. And and so I already pointed out if you were a vegetarian and you decided to not have uh, anything that had methionine in it because you were just going to depend on soy, you would be in trouble. And you that's a problem. So you'd run a methionine deficiency. So now let's say that you are collagen is so popular nowadays, right? Let's go into collagen a little bit. What is collagen made up of? So collagen is made up of, let's see here, it is made up of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. 13, I should say proteins because two of them are are, are slightly modified. It's um, 11 basic amino acids and two amino acids that are hydroxylated. Okay. Not that you care to know about that, but it's not all, it's not a complete amino acid. I think you know that when you're having your collagen and you think you're so, you know, at the cutting edge of, of, uh, keto and so on, and you're having your collagen, well, you could be running yourself into, if this is your only source of protein, you could be running yourself into a number of deficiencies. And one of those deficiencies would be, so I'll read these off. In collagen, you have histidine, isoleucine, leucine, valine. So it has all three branch chain amino acids. That's good for the liver. It has lysine. Uh, then it has hydroxylysine, hydroxyproline, alanine, arginine, glycine, glutamine, proline, and tyrosine. So wait a minute. If you just had collagen, collagen doesn't have tryptophan in it. If you start running a tryptophan deficiency, you're going to start to have behavioral difficulties. You're going to start running into behavioral, will you go bipolar? Will you be schizophrenic? Will you be depressed? You'll probably be all these things because then we now have an overlay of whatever your genomic predisposition is. We've talked a little bit about that. Certainly the people that go through our our coaching group, we go into a genome pretty deeply and uh, they picked up that different people have different levels of predisposition. That's why we talk about Alzheimer's as AP, uh, APOE44. They have a certain predisposition, which you can overcome with correcting your diet. And you have certain MTHFR, you've heard about, things like that. So these are all little, I call them ecosystems, clusters of, of mutations that could be a problem, but it gives you a predisposition. So some people have a predisposition to being very sensitive to being tryptophan deficient. And others, as I mentioned with thionine about soy, would be very, there's some that have very sensitive about being methionine deficient. Either way, you don't want to go there. You don't want to be deficient in those things. So let's look at collagen at length. And so we, when you talk about collagen, we go, oh, I'll take collagen. And I like collagen too, by the way. I haven't been taking it for about a month or two because I like to experiment. You know, I, And um, for whatever reason, about a year, uh, a year and a couple of months ago, I just had this sore shoulder, especially when I reached across and I couldn't quite figure it out. I thought, well, had I worked out and I pulled something, so I stopped worked out for a while, saw a chiropractor for certain things. And so for whatever reason, I started taking collagen. And within a month, my 
all those, my arm got better and it's now better. So you don't have to do something forever. But so was I collagen deficient? I mean, I, it's hard to find out how I got there. I don't, I can't remember enough of my own backstory to come up with that, but collagen was a godsend. And this is just basic green, Great Lakes collagen you can get on Amazon. It wasn't any, uh, collagen has now become so specialized and so, um, esoteric that I don't think it's necessary, but it's fun to talk about it. So we now have this limited. So part of the reason joint pain gets better, we're now talking about cartilage and cartilage is a kind of collagen. So, um, proline, lysine, and glutamine, uh, glutamine has a lot to do with the lining of your gut. So if you're, when you have glutamine in the context of amino acids, it tends to heal your gut a lot. So that's why collagen or bone broth. So we talk about things like gelatin. Gelatin is many amino acids together. That's a thing called gelatin. Uh, it's not one amino acid, but things like proline, um, some, in some, certain states, naturopaths actually will inject proline shots into the joint. So it's like a high-end, very refined collagen, if you will. It's, a, it's just an amino acid. And it tends to stop the pain and heal the joint. And, um, you know, they put a lot of little shots in there to make sure it works out right. And you go back for many treatments, but it works. And it's uh, well-documented it works. And I think it's basically a variation of this. So you can give individuals, you can give them collectively. I find, you know, there hasn't been a study of somebody just went, instead of doing those shots, they just started having collagen in their coffee or whatever, however they wanted to have it on a daily basis. I believe they would probably get the same effect, but slower, much more slowly. So let's talk about collagen in general. So collagen. So collagen. Over 90% of the collagen there's five different types of collagen, right? So the 90% of the collagen in our body, so collagen is everything from the cartilage of your ear, your nose, your skin, uh, your connective tissue, but let me be a little more specific. 90% of the collagen in the human body is what they call type one collagen. And actually I should stand corrected. As of 2011, there's been 30 different types of collagen that have been identified. And you go, oh, really? But for the most part, the conversation is just down to about five different types of collagen. And so you have type one, which is skin and tendons, uh, vasculature, meaning your arteries and your veins, bones. It's the main component of uh, organic bone. Type two is a component of cartilage. So touch your ear, touch your nose. And by the way, there's different kinds of cartilage. Type three is what they call... Um, reticulate, which is the component of a reticular fibers, which are pretty much part of one's collagen. Um, it's a part of it. Type four is what they call a basal lamina. That's the, the real fine part of your arteries when you go, go down. What else? Type five, um, type five collagen are the cell services of hair and in placenta. And um, that gets into a thing called um, keratin. And in non-humans, it's um, uh, something else. But uh, did you know that hair is not digestible? So if you actually ate your own hair or somebody else, it's not digestible. And mam mammals cannot digest hair. So that's why cats cough up hairballs. That's why if you're out in the woods and they've ever been with somebody who really knows how to track, they can tell what animal by their, by their scat right, by their scat, because their fur went through whatever they ate, 
So that's how you can tell what they ate, and therefore it's the predator of that thing that they ate, and that's pretty much how you identify it along with tracks. But that's what they look at. They're looking at the undigested parts, which is all that hair, and all that fur that they've uh, taken. Hair and fur are technically different. Okay, so um, the big amino acids in collagen are glycine, proline. 17% is of, of collagen is proline. That's probably why it really improves our joints. It, let's see, what else can I say? One of the things is we tend to think of, this has to do with vitamin C, is that people who take collagen tend not to get canker sores. They go, well, why is that? Well, when we tend to think of the story of being vitamin C deficient, which is true, you get scurvy. What does that mean? It means the collagen is breaking up in your mouth. Well, often what's also happening is you're lysine deficient. It's an amino acid you're deficient in. So often when, when patients will come and they say, you know, I have this, you know, I get canker sores pretty easily, uh, they're usually not vitamin C deficient. And so if you give them some lysine only or lysine with vitamin C, and that's a supplement you can find out there everywhere now, that that's why they're connecting it. It's the vitamin C is the thing that hooks together these lysine branches and therefore that's how your tissue stays together. So that's pretty interesting. So it's as much of a story about lysine as it is about vitamin C, even though we're hearing a lot about vitamin C in this era of COVID. Okay, so there you go with that. I'm not going to go too too deep with that, but we went from bone broth to collagen to some um, five essential amino acids in collagen, what collagen is good for, why it's good for, but you don't always have to take it. I've decided not to take it for a while to see what would have changed. I like looking at my labs and so on and so forth. Uh, my shoulder injury never came back. And it was, um, actually it was a shoulder injury with I had about 20 years from an old skiing accident. So it's interesting um, that I don't have to take that. It patched itself up, if you will, over a period of, let's say I was taking it for a year and I was being pretty, um, pretty disciplined about taking some every day. And that's good for a lot of other things. People take it in working out, Dr. Ben, um, has mentioned it more than once about taking it, uh, I forget if it was after or before working out, but around that era, around that time, that it helps with um, muscle repair, which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because when you're working out, you're breaking down muscle, help your muscle repair. Okay, so I'm going to stop there for just this basic background. So what I wanted you to get is that, yep, there's 21 amino acids. They all respond differently on the RQ quotient. And that is a quotient that's been used since the time of Warburg and before, probably back to Pasteur, to differentiate. And that's how Warburg was able to differentiate between a cancer cell that burned glucose only. Therefore, it had a high RQ, and it was closer to, it was one, versus one that had, it was a healthy tissue that, that had healthy mitochondria, and therefore, it could also burn fat, and that was around 0.7. So that's how it differentiates. You measure very quickly. And now you can get right into micro measurements right down into the mitochondria. But they're still using RQ as a way of showing what is the fuel for those cells, that part of the cell. Okay, you talked about collagen because we use that a lot. Uh, Carotene was a thing that I wanted. Carotene is hair. It's also the shell of reptiles. It's the feather of birds. It's the skin of amphibians. Uh, very close to the same chemical makeup as human hair. Okay, so from that, we're going to go forward 
from this basic understanding of these amino acids. And now we're going to bring that to carnivore. So I'm going to tease you to that because what does all this have to do with being carnivore? Well, in one way, people who are truly carnivore are saying, you know, all this talk of amino acids, I really, I'm just going back to, you know, Paleolithic times. I'm just eating meat. I'm eating fish. That's fine. Clearly, if you eat meat and you eat fish, you're going to get all your amino acids and that's good. But a lot of times people come into carnivore and they think that, well, it's just eating only protein. And what they do is that they go to that buffet. They go to that protein buffet and they go and they get that, um, they get whey protein. They go, oh, I'm going to stew whey protein. I didn't tell you about that, by the way. <laughs> I should go back to that. About whey protein. And because they've heard all good things about that and muscle mass and so on and so forth. That's an artificial way and you can get yourself into trouble. And you certainly can wicked, that means in science, very much increase your blood insulin levels. Not necessarily blood glucose levels, but your blood insulin levels by just having certain amino acids. Leucine being one, but certainly whey protein, which is a combination of amino acids, could really jack up your insulin, which is not something you really want to do. That will make you gain weight also make you produce muscle. And that's why muscle builders do it to the point they even inject themselves with insulin for that reason. So what I wanted to say is from the outside is that if you see carnivore as being strictly, you know, primitive man, ancestral diet, you're safe with that. And if you have the fats that come along with that, you're pretty much safe with that. You have to think about the essential fatty acids, but if you're doing a whole food source of protein, you've pretty much avoided all the other problems that most people have gotten themselves into that I see that want to come into our program because they've eaten all this other food. So I'm having to reintroduce it to the concept of just eating whole food source proteins. And that's a big deal. They don't believe that that's necessary. And for whatever reason, their life has drifted so far from that, that's a strange step for them to take. Okay. So you need to know it's not just about protein carnivore in my view is about whole food source of protein. And then we've told you how to calculate the amount of protein you needed. So that's the place to start. We're going to go forward with that, but just be thinking of these concepts. Okay. We're going to build on them. I know this was a bit technical, but it's going to be more sophisticated, more interesting as we get into it. Okay. So until next time, take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp again. And I just want to say I'm pretty excited about this opportunity we have coming up. We're going to be doing a protein-sparing modified fast for a group. And feel free to join that group. There will be a link in the show notes below for joining this particular group. It will link you to um, a Facebook group we'll be setting up temporarily. This uh, protein-sparing modified fast will be starting the Tuesday after Memorial Day, and that's in the U.S., I mean, you can do it any place in the world, but it's the Memorial Day in the U.S. is the thing I'm emphasizing here. And we're going to be sending out a uh, an email saying, these are the things that I would do to get ready for a protein-sparing fast, for this particular kind of fast. And we'll be sending out an email for the five days during the fast. There will really be four days of the fast. And the fifth day will just be kind of a meeting if you want to join. We'll do a uh, online Facebook live to go over Q and A's and different people's experiences. So some people are going to have um, really fun results. You know, they'll drop weight and feel great. Others may not have that. And so we're going to talk about the different experiences that 
people have and why they have those experiences. But for the most part, I think it's something that people really need to be led through so they don't do stupid things. So this is what will be in the Facebook group for, for any questions that come up. And it certainly will be part of our email, brief email sequence in the course of that period, particular time. So if you're interested, click the link below and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.